0: So during this season of Lent, uh, I am encouraging us to take God at his word. So if we were going to take God at his word today, not take the word of God for granted, not, you know, carry the word of God along with us as some sort of accessory, but what would it look like for us to actually like take God at his word today? Uh, I am focused in on Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Where in the word are you today? I'm in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. And that passage begins, uh, it is, by the way, the passage where we are instructed to put on the full armor of God, Um, and it begins with the word finally. Now, any passage of Scripture that begins with a word like finally or, or a passage of Scripture that begins with a word like therefore provokes us to ask, all right, what's the therefore therefore? Or if you see the word finally, you are provoked to ask the question, well, what is everything that comes before the word Finally. So in order to understand what comes next, we have to understand what comes before, which means we really do need to understand what happens uh, in Ephesians chapters one through five. And so let me just remind us that these concluding words of Ephesians in chapter six are rooted and grounded in the love described in chapter one, strengthened in the conversation that happens in chapter three about, you know, the, the, the people of Christ being strengthened in their inner being walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, pretty much the theme of chapters 4 and 5. And here it all culminates with this exhortation to stand up and to stand firm and to armor up as God's people who are prepared to engage in the battle before us. We're actually going to talk today um, at the end of the second hour about every man's battle. Uh, It it is the the conversation about purity in a culture of impurity, um, how every man and, frankly, every woman um, is faced today with all kinds of sexual temptations and uh, and conversations that earlier generations may or may not have had to entertain, but certainly in different ways than we have to entertain them now. It is a battle that we are in every single day. And so this armor up encouragement from Ephesians chapter 6 is, um, is essential. And so let me encourage you, as you are armoring up today um, using Ephesians chapter 6, why don't you go ahead and go back and read the prayers of Paul in Ephesians chapters one and three, so that you can um, you can sort of know what comes before this passage of scripture that says finally. And then let's armor up. Let's put on the full armor of God today. Let's consciously and intentionally, right now, wherever you are, right now. Don't close your eyes. But right now, I mean, especially if you're driving. But right now, consciously and intentionally, right where you are, take a minute to gird your life today with the belt of truth. What does it mean? To put the belt of truth um, around your waist, to cinch it in, to to be that thing that's the undergarment of everything else you're wearing. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. What in the world does that mean to have the righteousness of Christ um, guarding our hearts? How about the shoes of the gospel of peace? Put those on today and take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. And before you take one more step out there into the world, take up the sword of the Spirit, not like an accessory. But take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, as if it's actually a sword, not to slice and dice people up. That's not what we're talking about. But you're going to need it today in sort of the apologetic conversations of the day to when we say apologetics. All all I'm saying is that we as people of faith ought to know what our faith is and upon the truth, uh, the truth upon which it is based and be able to articulate that in our conversations with others. That's all I mean by the word apologetics. So how are you and I not just you know not just good at sword drills like saying chapter and verse uh, of the bible but are we actually good at I don't know fencing like actually using the sword of the spirit um not 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 to wound people not to cut them up or cut them down but to keep our place keep our standing be able to withstand the flaming arrows of the evil one flying at us all the time all right there you go uh, let's get armored up today in order that we can stand up today in order that we can speak up today always, uh, in, and in every way in the spirit of Christ, which would be the spirit of love. So let's speak the truth in love today as, uh, as God's people in the world. First up in terms of my conversations, I've got Ben Johnson. He is actually going to give us the key, the key to unlocking and understanding Bernie Sanders. That's up next here on mornings with Carmen.
2: A right a right given
1: by God to live a free life to live in freedom.
0: Joining me again today, Ben Johnson. He is at the rights writer. You can also find him at Acton, acton.org. Ben, welcome back.: Good morning, Carmen. You have the key you have the key to helping us understand Bernie Sanders. So um, I think you should tell us what it is.
1: Well, you know, a lot of people have begun to look very seriously at Bernie Sanders now that he's the front runner for the Democratic nomination and they've gone back into his history. Uh, Videos are uh, coming forward because of opposition research that show him praising communist dictatorships from the Soviet Union, the Sandinistas, Castro's Cuba, uh, essentially, anywhere where there was a Marxist, he has something positive to say about them. And uh, people have, have begun to ask, why is it that Bernie Sanders does this? Uh, so at the debate uh, on uh, Tuesday night, he, he started to defend Cuba. And if you look back into his history, as I do in in the piece at Acton, uh, I go through his history of defending communist dictatorships and the sorts of praises that he has lavished upon dictators. And uh, the way that this, uh, they're almost exactly identical to what he is saying now. For example, when he was talking about Cuba the other night, he said, uh, is it terrible that Cuba has a literacy program? Was that a bad thing? 35 years ago, when he had attended a, um, uh, a rally in Nicaragua supporting the Sandinistas in July of 1985, he came back and he said, is the Sandinistas crime that they built new health clinics, schools, and distributed land to the peasants? Is it their crime they've given equal rights to women, by which you meant abortion? Or that they're moving forward to wipe out illiteracy. So it's it's literally the exact same act that he has had for 35 years. Now, people began to ask, and even his constituents at the time asked, why is it that you shower this this sort of praise on people who deny the most fundamental rights to their citizens? For example, the the Ortega regime had literally just bombed a press conference where they killed three journalists. And one of his constituents asked him how he could possibly stand by the Sandinistas or other communist regimes that deny freedom of conscience, freedom of access, freedom of the press. The answer that he has given always comes back to the same trope. And this is the key to understanding Bernie Sanders, which is if you're old enough to remember the way that the left acted during the Cold War and some of the rationale that was used at that time, Sanders drank it in and uh, it, it. informs everything that he has to say about this issue. What he says is, and what the left said is, that the West and the East both emphasize rights, and they both grant rights to people, but they grant different kinds of rights. The West is focused on individual rights and liberties, freedom of the press, freedom of association, and uh, political and civil rights. Whereas the East focuses, and by the East they mean the communist bloc, focuses on economic and social rights, by which they mean socialism. And so when it comes to grading different regimes, instead of saying just forthrightly, Cuba is a dictatorship, uh, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela is a dictator and he should step down and make way for the duly elected government of Juan Guaido. Instead, you always see this sort of back and forth, two step uh, from from, uh, people like Bernie Sanders and Sanders specifically, where he'll, he'll have to praise what they are doing, because in his mind, these these rights are equal. Uh, your right to live and not face a firing squad because you believe in God or because you've written something against El comandante uh, is equal to the right of um, people to receive government-sponsored health care, uh, which is, for the most part, not really observed anyway. That's the key to understanding. It's this idea that the rights of of individuals... And the so-called economic rights of the government providing government welfare to people are identical.
0: Okay, so I feel like this is critical for people to understand. And so um, I really appreciate you tilling the soil with us. Um, When it comes down to the way that we are going to engage in this conversation as citizens of this democracy uh, in the coming year and in the years to come – This question about whether or not all rights are equal or if there is a hierarchy of rights. uh, And when I say hierarchy, I'm really talking about maybe a reverse hierarchy. Are there some rights that are so foundational and so essential that we cannot compromise them even when there are competing rights that individuals would express or even that a collective might express, um, but that are so destructive to us as a people um, that we – we can't say that is on par with this most foundational or basic of rights, which is therefore more fundamental and more important to us and therefore, you know, sort of trumps this other conversation. Am I am I at least beginning to till the soil in the right way there?
1: You're looking at it precisely the right way, which is which of these rights is most important, which of these are actually inalienable rights and which of these are governments instituted to protect. Uh, So, for example, the right of freedom of religion is fundamental, it's pre-political. For those of us who are Christians, we believe that a forced faith is no faith at all. If you don't willingly accept Christ, then you don't truly accept Christ. And so any government that would try to compel people uh, to say that they believe in Christ when they don't truly uh, is not respecting people's fundamental right. Your ability to to, uh, raise your own children, these these are all fundamental rights that the government was instituted to protect. Freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, Uh, freedom of the press. So these are fundamental rights. On the other hand, when we're talking about economic rights, what they really mean is that they fall into the old error that if the government isn't doing it, they think that it's not going to be done. Uh, So for for most of the things that they're talking about are things that are good and worthwhile, providing health care, obviously providing shelter and uh, food and uh, making sure that people have enough for themselves and their family in all economic realms. But the government wasn't necessarily instituted to do that the church should be providing this in most cases. Uh, When it comes to emergencies and uh, the need for those who are unable to care for themselves, the church should be caring for that. On the other hand, this uh, is something that could be done much more easily and readily through other associations like employment, uh, where people can get a job and they can take care of themselves in that way. And that's a much more a fulfilling uh, way of uh, for people to get the to work for their own prosperity uh, that leads to a greater life satisfaction, according to multiple studies. But it's also something that uh, works much better. You have greater prosperity when the free market is able to work, as opposed to the government simply handing out checks. the The old joke in the Soviet Union was, "We pretend to work, and they pretend to pay us." So. <laughs> This hierarchy of rights is precisely that some things are rights that the government is uh, really exists in order to protect, like our freedom of conscience. And other rights uh, are not necessarily associated with the government itself. They are pre-political and uh, some are pre-political and the government is there to protect them. Others are not necessarily best fulfilled by the government. And we have to understand that distinction very, very clearly in order to do our duty as Christian citizens.
0: All right. I'm talking with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can read the piece we're discussing right now at acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. When we come back, we're going to pivot from this conversation to an application of this conversation to something happening right now in the United States of of America. Um, Something called Title 10 uh, has had a rules change. That rules change has been allowed to go into effect. We're going to talk about um, the inalienable right to life versus a woman's um, right to abortion versus government-funded abortion and therefore using your taxpayer dollars to do what may be um, contrary to your religious conscience. So that's the conversation we're going to have next, and it is a conversation that flows out of the one that we've just had. Are, Are all rights equal or are some more fundamental than others? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute, Um, Ben, let's talk about Title X. What is Title X funding, and what are the rules that uh, have been allowed to go into effect in relationship to it?
1: Title X funding uh, came about uh, back in the uh, Nixon administration, and it's funding for uh, contraceptives, voluntary family planning, as it's called, but it basically comes down to paying for contraceptives millions upon millions of dollars a year every year go to Planned Parenthood as a result of this, because Planned Parenthood often distributes the contraceptives or other abortion providers as well. So that's been the nub of controversy for a very long time, as you can imagine. And uh, the, the understanding is that uh, there's a new rule, thankfully, from uh, the Trump administration, saying that these monies cannot go to anyone who would advise or who would refer anyone for an abortion. So if you're going to receive this federal money, you can't use it in order to advocate for abortion. That's that's the rule. It was just upheld in a 7-4 ruling uh, by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which just as a parenthesis, anyone who's familiar with jurisprudence knows that the Ninth Circuit used to be the most liberal court in the entire country. Uh, that's the one that has jurisdiction over San Francisco. Its rulings were so far out, they used to call it the Ninth Circus Court of Appeals. So that tells you how transformational Donald Trump's appointments have been uh, in the federal judiciary. It's probably been the most lasting fruit of his entire presidency. But so that can issue pause, is whether or not can, you can be you can be compelled to pay for uh, abortion and to refer for abortion.
0: Okay, so I want to pause there because you you highlighted something in your comments that I want to be sure people don't miss. Um, we often say elections have consequences, and we often um, think you know only about the consequence of what that person is going to do in that position. This is a conversation in terms of this Title IX, uh, I mean, Title X funding. This is a conversation not only about the executive power to make rules that um, that are then carried out by the executive branch, because that is what's happening in terms of the Title X funding. But it's also the impact and effect that the president has a very significant influence and impact on the judiciary by the judges who are appointed during that individual's presidency. And so when we talk about the Ninth Circuit upholding um, a Trump administration rule change, we are talking about the way uh, that the election of President Trump has affected not only rules related to HHS and other um, branches of, of the executive part of our government, but we are talking about um, whether or not and the way in which the judiciary then upholds or um, or Sets aside those kinds of uh, executive decisions it, is, is it, I mean, people should understand that the influence and impact of uh, of a presidential election has has generational influence because of the appointment of judges.
1: It truly does. the uh, The president, uh, whoever has the presidency, has a cascading effect upon every other branch of government. He appoints thousands upon thousands of people in the federal, uh, in the executive area of the uh, government, but also, as we mentioned, two Supreme Court justices already and uh, potentially two or three more down the line if there is a second term, and then hundreds upon hundreds of judges uh, to lower courts. And this is transforming uh, the idea of jurisprudence. At one time, it was just understood if uh, if you were in California, Oregon, the West Coast, it wasn't worth Going to the circuit uh, to the uh, federal appeals court because you're going to be overturned unless your goal was to get to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, you simply could not win at the Ninth Circuit. So this is changing, and this is a pro life ruling on behalf of a pro life rule uh, for a program that frankly probably shouldn't exist. There's no constitutional authorization for the government to hand out contraceptives to people, and uh, to the extent that uh, the government is involved in it, certainly those who receive federal funding should. Uh, Also obey federal laws and understand that uh, the federal government is not in the process, is not in the position of using federal money in order to uh, underwrite abortion or to uh, secure abortion or to popularize abortion among those who are receiving federal money.
0: All right. So I want to give a um, a shout out right now and a word of encouragement to anyone and everyone who works at a, a faith based pregnancy center. Anywhere across the country, anybody that is on the board of one, anybody that supplies uh, material aid to uh, to to those organizations in our local communities. Let's be people who are on the the right side of this conversation, providing for women who find themselves um, either desiring to, you know, fa- do their family planning in advance and um, and have access to legitimate contraception. Um, and then let's also be people who are ready to be pro life for all of life and for every life, and what it looks like to um, to support them through our local network of pregnancy centers. So let me just encourage you today to consider that um, as as a part of the way that you engage in your own local community. All right, we're going to say goodbye today to Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find him at acton a c t o n dot o r g. When we come back, um, we have a we have a really um, uh, well, appropriate conversation coming up next with a listener from North Dakota. Um, it, this is—I don't know—it's it's sort of become a series that we're having now. Um, folks who have reached out in response to a conversation we had several weeks ago about the reality that there are millions and millions of women in America who have had abortions and who are Christians or now Christians, and so abortion is a part of their a part of their story. And we're going to hear uh, Jody's testimony in just a moment. We'll be right back. Okay, so we've been having an ongoing conversation here um, with with women to this point, but I'm certainly open to having a conversation with men for whom this is a part of your testimony and experience as well. Um, abortion is, you know, a reality in America. I mean, we have this tragic reality of 61 million abortions um, here in the United States of America, literally in, you know, in little more than a generation. And so... Um, recognizing that there are women and men in, in our churches next to us in the pews who have this um, very deep, painful secret as a part of their testimony. Um, I became aware that it can be really freeing, and it can be an opportunity for a real light and real life for people to be able to share their story and inspire others to do the same. And so, um, we've had a couple of uh, of conversations in the last few weeks with listeners to the program who have responded to the invitation to you know share their story. Jody Clemens is um, is another such person, and she's going to be here next. Um, she actually is engaged now in uh, in a ministry where you know they go and they they tell their stories, they share their stories in churches to help other men and women. Um, be able to begin to deal with the abortion in their past um, as a part of their redemptive testimony. Like, God can forgive this and God can fully redeem. There is hope and there is light and there is life. Um, and and there's no sin that is beyond God's ability to forgive. So, Jody Clemens uh, up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: Ever had that awful moment when you bark out a command at your kids and you realize you sound just like your parents? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. No matter how much we vow to parent differently than our mom and dad, we tend to perpetuate their style. But things are different these days. The world has changed and parents, we need to change with the times. You and I need to move from controlling to coaching without surrendering our core values. We need to meet our kids at their level. Parents who dig in their heels and don't adjust tend to push their teens away. So shake off the negative habits of generational parenting. It's a new day. Shake up the family tree and adjust to meet the needs of your family. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for "Parenting Today's Teens" in your favorite app store.
0: Joining me now, Jody Clemens. She is a listener in North Dakota. Jody, welcome! Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Well, thank you, Carmen, for the opportunity to share today. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to um, Jody, so you and I have had an opportunity to talk off air. And so I have, um, I have heard your story. I just want to invite you to, um, to share your story with everyone else.
2: I would love to do that, Carmen. And I thank you. And truly, these are stories that few women are willing to share, but they are definitely stories that need to be heard. So I will share my story. I was 23 years old. Single, had completed college, and was pursuing my career when I made a decision that changed the course of my life forever. Now, I was raised in a home where faith was emphasized and practiced. I had been baptized, confirmed. I memorized and could recite all the necessary church teachings. I attended church on a regular basis, and I was engaged in a lot of church activity. But truth be known, that was all I was doing. I heard about God, but I did not know Him. So in time, I decided that my ways were better, more pleasurable, and surely more fun than God's ways. And I started chasing after earthly pleasures to fulfill my fleshly desires. But in doing this, like many, I never paused to consider the possible consequences of my actions, my life choices, but all that changed one day, that dreaded day. I was feeling sick, and I went to visit a doctor. He hospitalized me overnight, and early the next morning, the doctor came into the room and looked at me and said, well, young lady, the reason you are so sick is because you are pregnant. And without even taking a breath, the very next words out of that doctor's mouth were this, but you do know you can have an abortion. Now, quite frankly, I knew very little about abortion. Call me naive, but I didn't. Abortion was not a topic that was discussed in my family, among my friends. And I never heard the word abortion in the church that I attended. But now the test was positive. Yes, I was having a baby. This was absolutely not in my life plan. This was a day I was not prepared for. I felt no joy, no excitement. It was quite the opposite. I felt despair, fear, regret, shame. I was angry. And one thing I now deeply knew was this, that I had a problem that I needed to fix. I had a problem that needed fixing. Well, because of the fear and confusion I was now feeling, I decided to talk with other individual, individuals. I am not a woman who kept my pregnancy a secret. I chose to talk with people that I had trusted in the past. Believing, of course, that they would have my best interest at heart. These are people that love me. They would tell me what to do. Well, all the people I talked to agreed with the doctor. They all said abortion was best. Various reasons were given, but all the reasons could be summed up like this. It was either me and my future or the baby, but not both. It was an either-or situation. The baby would be a burden, a hardship. I would lose my freedom. Quite possibly I would lose my job. I was told that I would get over it, that I could return to my teaching career, and I would have a real life with a real future. Well, I can tell you at that time that sounded really good to me. It was exactly what I wanted, my life to return to normal and this problem to be fixed. I convinced myself that abortion was no different than any other medical procedure I had undertaken. I would go to the clinic and take care of my medical condition. Now my mother's heart, which was created to nurture love and protect my child, became callous and hard. A fortress of bricks surrounded and falsely protected my heart. My maternal instincts were suppressed, nearly non-existent, as Satan targeted my mind with his weapons of lies and softly whispered, it's harmless. It's harmless, Jody. The father of the baby made the arrangements and the appointment and shortly after that, I was sitting in the waiting room of an abortion facility. I recall most vividly everything about that day. I recall driving to the abortion facility and I can still picture myself walking into that facility. I also vividly recall that once inside the abortion facility, my emotions started to shift. This became a crossroads for me Thoughts and questions started stirring within me. Why am I here? I felt apprehensive, not knowing what lie had. There was a coldness in the atmosphere. I remember wondering about the other women that were sitting and waiting, and I thought, I just want to be invisible. Don't see me, and I won't see you. Honestly, I wanted to leave, but I felt as if I needed permission to do so. And when when permission was not granted, I just remained seated. Now, I received no explanation of the medical procedure or possible complications, but I was told this, that it would soon be over and everything would be fine. Don't worry. This is just a quick and easy procedure. You will be in and out of here in no time at all. I asked if it would be painful. They said no. These are all lies, but quite honestly, looking back, I know I chose to believe those lies to justify going forward. Well, my name was called and I was taken back to the procedure room. And this is another vivid memory for me. I remember every sight, every sound, and every smell. But most vividly, I remember during the procedure that tears started flowing down my face as the reality of what I was doing now became very clear, very evident. And I knew at that time that my baby was dying, or now dead. And what I had done, I could never undo. There was no redos on this decision that I had made. Well, the procedure was completed and I was taken back to a recovery room where there were other women who had just gone through the same procedure. No one spoke, no one smiled, no laughing, no eye contact. There was an eerie silence in the atmosphere. And I was put in a recliner to, quote, recover. I felt numb as tears continued to flow down my cheeks. But far worse for me is what happened next, and it changed my life for years. As I sat in that recliner, I started hearing a message that played over and over in my mind. It was like a recorded message that I could not turn off. I could not control it. And the message I heard was this. You murdered Therefore, you must die. You murdered. Therefore, you must die. Over and over again. And at that point, reminders of scriptures that I had learned earlier in my life just started flooding my thought process. I remember hearing an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Well, I knew a life had been taken, and I now truly believed my life would be demanded of me in return. I heard, you will reap what you sow. Well, I knew what I had just sown, and I now believed I would reap the same. You murdered, therefore you must die. Well, not knowing how to rid myself of these thoughts and the fear that I felt at that time, I did the only thing I knew to do. And I bundled up these thoughts and I buried them deep within my innermost being and my soul. And I made a vow to myself sitting there that I would never, ever talk about this again and never, Ever, no one would know about this. This would be my secret, my forever secret. For you see, to choose abortion is to choose silence. And silence became my prison. Prison. I was isolated and alone, both tools of the enemy. But when he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And what the enemy had once softly whispered to me was so harmless. He now loudly shouted, was hopeless. The father of lies never satisfied now turned and became my accuser. And accused he did relentlessly, day and night.
0: Jody, let's I um know. let's just let's just pause for just a moment. Um we need to take a very brief break. Um mm-hmm. when we when we come back we want to continue with your testimony. Um and you know and and we're gonna remind people now and tell them in advance um, the enemy was twisting the scriptures, and the enemy absolutely. was was absolutely lying. And um, and Jody's going to share with you right after the break um, how God mm-hmm. has absolutely redeemed this story. Um, so that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Jody Clemens, who is a listener from North Dakota, is uh, sharing with us today uh, her testimony, her story. Um, and Jody was 23 years old, um, and and had an abortion. Um, she has told that part of her story, uh, and she is um, is now going to share with us um, how that has affected not only her entire life and her marriage, but the way in which God has um, redeemed her and offered real forgiveness and real life. Because we want uh, women to know, women and men to know that's available for you today as well. Jody, go ahead and uh, and pick up uh, pick up your testimony.
2: All right, thank you, Carmen. Well, I left that abortion facility. I also left my career and the relationship with the father of the baby was forever over. The years that followed my abortion were lost years in many ways. My life spiraled out of control, and I engaged in self-destructive behavior. Uh, my pre-choice. Did not by any means end my shame, despair, and fear. It was only the beginning, and now I was entangled in a whole new layer of fear, and it was this, that if I'm feeling this bad about myself, then surely God must feel way worse about me. And I got myself to a place where I believed there was no possible way that God could ever forgive me for what I had done. And even if he could, I felt I never deserved his forgiveness. I was just too broken and too messy. My life companions became hopelessness and despair as I struggled to keep my forbidden secret. Well, I did enter a marriage without telling my husband about my abortion. I was convinced that if he knew, he would never marry me. And after my marriage, I lived in daily fear that if he found out that he would leave me. I recall feeling in some twisted way that it would just be easier if he would leave me or divorce me than if he ever found out my ugly secret. And even though I never talked about abortion, I want everyone to know that there wasn't a day that I didn't think about abortion. Well, 10 years passed with no relief. 10 years as I battled with undealt with sin, unresolved guilt, grief, and a sense of justice that longed to be satisfied. Now, wouldn't that be sad, Carmen, if that was the end of my story? Tragic. That was it. But. Honestly, for some women, unfortunately, that is the end of the story. They never, never experience the forgiveness and healing that they can find in Christ Jesus. But this is not the end of my story. God did have a plan, a plan to give me a hope and a future, as he does for every woman who has had an abortion. And God arranged the circumstances of my life where I was put in a position to hear words of hope, from God's Word. And it came in the form of just one verse, which is a real testimony, friends, to the power of God's Word. And it was this. It's Luke 5, 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And when I heard that, and I heard it a second time, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but Sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I fell to my knees and I cried out and I said, God, if that is true, I am one sick woman. And unless you save me, I surely shall die. And at that moment, I sensed the heavens open and the healing warmth of God's love invaded, and melt my heart. And his amazing grace reached down and started stitching together my shredded soul. I was a messy woman who had just breathed in the mercy and grace of God, and my life started to radically change. In time, I heard that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit tell me to go and tell, tell others what God had done. Well, I agreed to do that, knowing that in order to do that, I first needed to deal with my own household. This meant telling my husband and my children, which I hadn't yet done. Now, I'd love to tell your listeners that I just jumped right on that. <laughs> but truth be told, fear set in again as lies flooded my mind. Your husband will leave you. Your children will hate you. Well, eventually, with God's help and God's intervention, I did tell both my husband and my children. And the result was unconditional love and forgiveness. From there, I have not looked back. God has redeemed my life. I have gone and told, leaving the consequences in the hands of my Heavenly Father. I've been blessed to work in pregnancy resource centers, maternity homes. I was blessed to work in an adoption agency where I assisted in placing over 100 children in evangelical Christian homes for adoption. I facilitate a panel of seven women who go tell their stories, and we have been in thousands of venues and spoken to thousands of people. I am excited to be a member of the 40 Days for Life North Dakota committee. I go to our state's only abortion facility to offer tangible, loving help to women approaching the doors of death. And I co-facilitate a post-abortion Bible study in our area. 61 million babies have unjustly perished, unjustly died, and 61 million women have undergone an abortion. Abortion is the most common medical procedure performed on women. This is tragic and this ought not be. This mission field of post-abortion women is plentiful, but the workers are few. I am asking the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into this harvest, the post-abort of women, post-abort of men, that they may know the forgiveness, love, and freedom they can find in Christ because he is standing with open arms, ready to receive you. The one who loved you first is waiting for you. That's my story.
0: Jody, um, first of all, thank you so much for um, your vulnerability and your willingness to share your story. I know that you do it as um, as a, almost a discipline in response to God's um, not only grace and forgiveness um but his demand that you that you tell others Mm -hmm. while you and i were talking um one of our listeners texted in um that she had an abortion almost 35 years ago and there's not a day that goes by i don't think about it i deeply regret it jody's story is so familiar to me i wish i could talk Mm -hmm. to others about it especially my children but i can't um because i'm so afraid they'll condemn me um I'm I'm giving her your phone number. Um I hope that's okay. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. right. Um and and Absolutely. I think that what Jody and I want everybody who's listening to hear us say is that this is not an unforgivable sin. Um it is sin. We recognize that. We acknowledge it as such. Um but this is a brokenness and a darkness and a shame with which you do not have to eternally live. You you can Amen. be liberated from, um, from this despair and this darkness. Um, so Jody Clemens, thank you so very much. I'm going to direct people to 40. That's the number 40 days for life Um, if you want to, uh, know about the pals program, which is post abortive mm-hmm. ladies, um, and mm-hmm. Jody Clemens, thank you so very much for joining us today on mornings with Carmen.
2: Thank you for having me, Carmen.
0: We'll be right back. okay so um, we blew through our break so let me just uh, let me just close with this uh, in this hour um, be the person who's safe to tell today uh, if you are like this listener um, who needs to talk to somebody she needs somebody who's safe to tell um, if you have uh, if you've never considered becoming a person who is safe to tell that's the prayer that you and I need to be praying today if abortion's not a, a part of your own personal history it's a part of your family history. It's a part of the conversations that you could be having with women who are sitting next to you in the pews of your church, but you have to be a person who's safe to tell. Um, and so cultivate a spirit um, of being a person who's safe to tell today and be open to the stories of others that God indeed might offer redemption and forgiveness. If you're listening to Mornings with Carmen, we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio.